As we continue in worship this morning, if you would uh, turn over in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter uh, 15. As we come to this passage, we've been talking about, right, in in this chapter, ever since uh, the glorious body, uh, the questions Paul has been dealing with is resurrection, right? What happens in the resurrection? last few weeks, we've been talking about the resurrection, and I simply titled this message, excuse me, that all believers will be changed. And everyone said? Amen. Amen. Uh, Last week, you know, I I mentioned there's always a direction. I'll say this often. There is a direction in your spiritual walk. It is to be growing. When the Bible speaks of the heart, it never speaks of the heart as passive, as if it's just a neutral, right? If you're thinking of a car, the heart is either in drive or reverse. That's the only two gears in the heart, as the Bible, the language of the Bible, meaning that your heart is either actively growing towards Christ or it's it's going the other direction. That's how the Bible uses, right, sanctification, this idea of direction, so there's always, even in uh, theology, what Paul is unfolding for us, speaking of, of resurrection, right, and the fact that Christ is the first fruits, he immediately places this not just in the created order, but that he says, you know what, it also pertains to your moment, your life, your sanctification right now. Paul has this conviction, and he never wavers in it, right? We, we know this about Paul. In all of his letters, he begins with theology or doctrine, right? We love those words. And then he says, here's how you live it out, right? That's his model of everything he, uh, he teaches on. And this passage, as we wrap chapter 15 up, uh, verses 50 through 58, we'll look at, uh, he is this no different, no different whatsoever. Paul has this conviction that if you're a believer, you're not sitting on your hands, right? You're, you're active. You're growing spiritually in your walk. You're, you're opening your Bible. You're struggling through Scripture, right? Because there are passages that are difficult to understand, but we continue to press in. That's been his call to the Corinthians who say, you know what? We've got the gospel. What else? So what do they do? They look to the culture, right? Unfortunately, American Christianity has done that way too much. We look to the culture, whereas we need to be looking to God's Word and digging harder into it, right? And there are things that are difficult. There are things that we may read and go, wait, What? But that's why I always say we must come under authority. And so when we come up with those passages that, that I disagree with, I'm not going to call the Bible wrong, right? So I'm going to call myself wrong. Lord, help me to understand. Help me to fix this. Help me to fix my theology. This is Paul's heart. Even in, in areas of resurrection, that we would come under the authority and realize, man, there's activity that God desires of us. We don't get to just sit back, right, and hear about the blessed hope and the, the glorious resurrection in the new body, which is good news, right? Some of us have aches and pains this morning. We're going, oh, thank you, Jesus, right? There's a day. We don't get to just say, man, that's great. That's coming. It's part of it, absolutely. But even with our eyes fixed on the future, Paul is saying right now, you need to be a light that shines. You know, I've shared this story before about Dietrich Bonhoeffer and during World War II and his fellow uh, professing Christians would come to him and say, what are you doing? Why are you laboring? They're going to throw you in jail. They're going to kill you. Hitler's the Christ. Why, are, why do you keep doing this? Just call it a day. Make Go the easy street. Don't, don't create a fuss. Right? The Lord will deal with him and it'll all be easy. Bonhoeffer's response is to say, look, if Christ comes tomorrow, 
That's when I'll rest. But right now, I must, right, respond to the tyranny, to the wickedness that is happening. See, Bonhoeffer, I believe, had an idea of the future. He knows, he knows what's going to go on. He understands the victory is already won. But right now, right, in this place where God has placed you, there are those who do not know, have never heard the name Jesus. And you have those confused in the nation of Germany, right, who are thinking this is the right direction. We may see elements of that in our own nation in the coming right, months and years. This idea that there is you know, a, a new racism coming, a new segregation that they're promoting. The Christian stands in the gap and says, no, that is, that is sin that is wrong. So here we come to this passage of Paul looking at the resurrect, the glorious body. He places it in the future tense. This is what we will have. He looks then and says, this is because of Christ in the past tense. And then his conclusion to everything is present tense. This is what you do about it right now. This is how we get going. So this is what Paul is saying. We're looking at our final victory, verses 50 through 58, and this is what he says, concluding this chapter. Now this I say, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Nor does corruption inherit incorruption. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, the last trumpet. For the trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. Excuse me. For this corruptible must put on incorruption. And this mortal must put on immortality. So when this corruptible has put on incorruption, and this mortal has put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your sting? O Hades, where is your victory? The sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. But it's our contrast. Thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. Let me offer a brief prayer. <clears throat> Lord, we thank you again for this time you've given to us that we can turn to your word. I ask that your spirit would teach us Illuminate your word to us that we would be changed, that we would grow in our understanding. Father, I ask that you take me out of the way that every soul here this morning be fixed on you and receive what you have for us. And we pray this for your glory. In the name of our Savior Jesus, amen. So Paul has been writing to us with this mindset of, of the already but not yet. Right? We are at this present moment. If you've believed on Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you're part of the already. Right? We are redeemed. We are saints. We've been set apart. The biblical language for sainthood is you and me. Right? It says, look, if you're, if you're believed, if you've come to believe on Jesus Christ, you are a saint. However, we also know that in this body that is decaying, we'll struggle with sin. Right? We are saints and sinners, and I believe... It was Martin Luther who coined that. 
But Paul has this idea that we are, regardless of the, of the already and not yet, there is work for us to do. And he's mentioned to us that we shall bear, right, the image of the Son. We bear now the image of the first Adam. He told us, looked at that last week. And, but yet he desires that in this present moment, <clears throat> excuse me, that we would bear uh, the image of the second Adam, right, of Christ. So Paul is calling the church, he's calling you and me, he's calling every believer to say, you know what, you should prepare for the future, right? We should be active in our obedience. He gives them this exhortation, look, there's work to be done. You don't get to say, you know what, Jesus has redeemed my soul, so therefore I'm just going to put my, my spiritual walk on neutral. I'm just going to do my thing. I'm just going to come to church on Sunday or maybe every other Sunday, or let's just say once a month, you know, that's good. However you want to define that, that's not what Paul is saying. Paul nowhere has that conviction, right? Paul is writing from, from this foundation of saying, you've got work to do, and part of that work is being connected with God's people, especially on the Lord's Day where we assemble to worship, right? We are to be here best that we can. Now, we know there's circumstances, but the best, it should be a conviction in us. So he's saying, look, the church has work to do. Every believer has work to do. So he sets that and he says, but here's the blessed hope. Here's what we get uh, to have in the future. And this is how he unfolds this for us. And this is the beginning of this, right? This activity and this direction. He begins by saying, let's look to the future. And I say, "All, all believers will change, right? Every single one of us who know Christ as Lord and say, we'll change from mortal to immortality, that's good news. It says in these verses, 50 through 53, he maps it out for us in a moment, right? In the twinkling of an eye. The last trumpet, where the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised, incorruptible. We shall be changed. It says this is looking to the future. This is what we have in Christ. This is the not yet of the already, but not yet, right? But it's coming. So Paul's beginning here. He's saying, look, every believer... Right Here is your future hope. This is what Christ has done. And, and it begins, and I think I put this in your notes, is why is the change needed? Right? He kind of explains that to us. And it's very simple. Right? When Adam ate that fruit, we had a sin problem right there. And every person born, right, <clears throat> has been born with the same problem. When Adam ate, we ate. Right? And therefore, death has come. This is why Paul is going when the new body is gone, right? Or the old body is gone, the new one has come, there's no more death. So we have this, this problem in our bodies. God is a holy God and no one can be in his presence, right? No sin can be in his presence. So uh, this uh, vehicle, right, this body isn't going to make it, right? I know that new body, it's going to have that new body smell, right? Like the new car smell. It's going to be better, right? The human is corruptible. This is what it does. It dies, it decays, it deteriorates. We feel this, we know this, we see this. Right? So Paul sets that out. He says, look, this is why it is necessary in verse 50. This is why our bodies are decaying. It cannot be in the presence of a holy God. He gives us a little bit more insight about this Look, as we look to the future. And he says the change is a new revelation. Right? He comes and he uses the word Mystery. Mystery, right, means revelation. And it's amazing. I mean, here we see, uh, Paul has done this before, right? What I have received from the Lord Jesus Christ, I have made known to you. It's the instruction of communion, 
Right here, he is, is in essence, is saying the same thing. What I have received by the Holy Spirit, I am writing to you. See, we believe as a church, and every, I believe every professing Christian believes the incomprehensibility of God. We say that big word, and we say, God is vast. I mean, how do we calculate the fact that God knows all the stars and gives them a name and knows all their details and knows all their uniqueness? And then, he, what? And then I'll make Tyson. What? Right? But yet he does, and he makes us, right? And, and we realize that he's incomprehensible. And yet what the Lord has revealed in his word, he wants us to know. You know, our conviction, and I believe this is true of every believer, is to say the Holy Spirit has written the word of God. So therefore, I have a responsibility to every word that's in it, right? I need to come and to read it and say this. This is the God who saves. This is the God who changes everything. The psalmist said it. He's over all the earth. He reigns, right? So we worship him with understanding. So Paul is simply saying as he comes and he gives this information that this isn't conjured up by some person or some guy I saw on the streets who said, hey, you should just write this down. He's saying, no, this is revelation from God. God desires that you understand this. That's our conviction. Our conviction. And so what does he want us to know? He says, well, the resurrection involves the living and the dead. Now, Paul isn't saying that. He's expecting the revelation, to, or this resurrection, excuse me, to come uh, during his lifetime, right? But what he is saying, and he understands, is that when Christ comes, there will be breathing people on the earth, right? There will be those who are redeemed by him at that moment. And he says, those people don't go to heaven by way of the grave, I remember as a child, desperately wanting to be a part of that group. As an adult, it's just compounded, right? <clears throat> I don't know about you, but I just thought, man, how cool it would be. And I'll be honest, it wasn't a spiritual thought. It was just the thought of jettisoning up out of the earth, right? I mean, like, that would be... Superman was a hero as a kid growing up, okay? So I had that idea. Regardless of how the Lord wants to do it, right? Whether I go to be with Him and I'm breathing... All right, it goes by the way of the grave. All shall not sleep, right? That's what he's saying. All shall not sleep. The resurrection is of the living and of the dead. He also tells us it's going to be a sudden change. God wants you to realize that this is, happens in the twinkling of an eye in a, in a moment. So right now, as your pastor, I press upon you that you, you understand that you are in Christ. There won't be a time to say, oh man, look, Christ is returning uh, this is the end. I better may make this prayer work this time or make it stick or something, right? You don't have time to do this. What should impress upon us is the delay. I believe this is one of the, of the lies, one of the many lies of the evil one, right? He always likes to tell you, you know what? Yeah, God, he's good. Yeah, that's good. Uh, he loves you, absolutely. But you have tomorrow. You always have tomorrow. And too often people put this off. You're not guaranteed a long life, and neither am I. I always think it's so fortunate for people who have lived a long life, and it's not until the you know, moments before they die that they actually believe, and I think how, God is, how merciful God is. How many days did they walk on this planet, right? They died. They're going to spend eternity in hell. So you and I, man, this morning, hear this. God wants you to know that this happens in a moment, this is true to what Jesus said in Matthew, right? When you hear of, of those saying the Messiah is out in the wilderness 
says, don't go out there. Because I'll tell you I'm going to come. There's going to be lightning. It's going to be quick. You know this, right? Understand this. It's a quick thing. Be sure your salvation is in Christ. You're secure in this. It's a moment, right? A twinkling of the eye. He also says that it will be at the end. Not only should we be sure today, there's no second chances. This is the end. This is, he's speaking of the day when Christ returns and there is judgment. And at this day, there will be separation of the sheep and the goats. Right? We think of the, the parable <clears throat> of, of, I believe it's Lazarus. Someone will have to help me with this. Please go tell my brothers, right? Tell them about hell, but they had their time. And it's not coming to my mind right now, but you know, there is no second chances. That's what I believe the Lord wants you to understand, that at this moment, there's no, hey, can I have a do-over? All right, do-over, let me call it. He says that at the last trumpet, uh, this will happen. Right, the end of our bodies in the grave, those will be resurrected. Those who are alive will be uh, raptured. We see this. And then Paul ends with this understanding. He wants you to know that this is a certainty. This is a sure thing. He says the trumpet shall sound. Factual. The dead shall be raised incorruptible. Factual. We shall be changed. See, if you're here this morning and you're waiting to that right time, I'm going to tell you today is the right time. If you've been thinking about Christ or you're just unsure of it, today is to get those, today get those questions answered. There's no second chances. And Paul says, look, this is what's going to happen. It's a very good thing, right? Our bodies will take on a glorious body. We have the fact of it. Jesus is the first fruits of the resurrection. We know others are going to come. Paul has, has complete conviction here to say, look, church, Right? This is the future. This is where you're going. The Lord has overcome the world. Right? He's not a beggar. He's a righteous king. Guess what? He's going to come back. Have faith in this. Be encouraged by this. This is where we're heading. Right? He's telling the church. He's telling us. No, this is where we're going. He calls from here. Now he goes to, the, to how is this all possible? Right? How, did, how does this come about? In verses 54 through uh, 57, I simply say all believers have received Christ's victory over sin and death. It says, so when the corruptible has put on incorruption and the mortal has put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your sting? O Hades, where is your victory? The sting of death is sin and the strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. So here is, for every believer, the already of the already, but not yet. Right? This is what we have. We look forward to the new body. We look forward to the resurrection. All things new, all things beautiful, no more sin, no more deterioration, right? Look forward to that. How do we have it right now? Because we have a Savior who's overcome the world. It is the precious power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Paul's saying this is a present tense. 
You know, what's interesting here is even though Paul is writing of our victory in Jesus and what victory we have, but he also is looking forward in a future tense kind of way. He's looking forward and saying uh, the, the believer is standing in the kingdom of God. The believer already is incorruptible. Right? He writes about what we have in Christ right now. It's almost as if he's saying it's assured. You have this. It's the right motivation to everything that's going to follow. And so what does he tell us? Well, the first thing is that victory was promised by God long ago. All right, Isaiah 25, 8. He will swallow up death forever. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces. The rebuke of his people he will take away from the earth. For the Lord has spoken. Isn't it good that God keeps his promises? Some of us are excited about that. <laughs> God promised this. He will see it to completion. That's Paul's conviction. It should be you and mine as well. The other thing is we see that victory conquered, right? The sting of death. There's no more death, right? Sin entered the world when Adam ate that fruit, right? And I know I joke about this. And we get to heaven, there's going to be a time I think I'll slap Adam first, right before we hug him. That might, right, I'm pretty sure that won't happen. We'll be so consumed with Christ. We're going to worry about those things. But we have this, this idea, right? It'll be dealt with, and then sin will be gone. That's, that's wonderful, right? Death, therefore, will be gone. All this is taken away. There's no more of it. And so Paul says, but thanks, right, is our contrast. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Immediately attaches it right to everything. This is Paul's statement from the very beginning. This has been Paul's heartbeat always is the gospel. Paul never gets tired of telling people about Jesus and what Jesus has done. He made it a point in chapter 1, right, at the beginning of chapter 2. I preach Christ and him crucified. This is my message. I come with nothing else so that you would know your faith Right? You're believing in God the Father through Christ is built upon the power of God and not on me. To which we all said yes. So Paul once again says, this is what you have in Christ. This is the victory. I have this thought that popped into my head. I wonder right, if Paul's writing this down and he's thinking, do they believe it? I've said it. I mean, he's brought us back to it. He's talked about it. right? Christ all the way through. Here's the gospel. I think today we, we, the American Christianity is tired of the gospel. We want something else. Paul never got tired of it. Paul believed it's only in Christ. It's only in Jesus. And Jesus could only fulfill this because that's what he tells us. See, the victory was accomplished through Christ who fulfilled the law. So we were born with a sin problem. We're born with a heart of rebellion. We're born condemned. How does a condemned person make everything right? They can't. Christ never broke the law. Christ was perfect in righteousness. He was perfect in all his ways. And he overcame the penalty that sin deserves. He bore it on the cross. It's only Christ. Paul also says the victory was accomplished through Christ who bore our punishment. It was Christ perfect. But he goes on to say it's the great exchange. 
And here's the heartbeat of the gospel. You and I, at the end of our lives, will stand before a holy God, and we'll either stand there standing in our own righteousness or that of another. We will not stand if we try, think we're going to stand on our own righteousness. We will deserve the full brunt of the wrath of God. I heard R.C. Sproul one time say, and I've thought on this statement for a while, I think he's right. He said, you know, if I wake up and I'm in hell when I die, he said, I will, I will understand that this is what I deserve. I remember hearing that thinking, wow, this is, I think he's absolutely correct. So we don't understand the weight damage of our sin, our rebellion. The confidence we have in what Sproul was teaching is the simple fact, right? That all those in Christ will have no fear of this. Christ has done something for he took your punishment. This is past tense, right? This is what Christ has done. It sets the tone for the future. Notice what Paul says here. It's our Lord Jesus Christ. It's our Lord Jesus Christ. See, it's our Lord Jesus Christ who died on the cross. It's our Lord Jesus Christ who rose from the dead. It's our Lord Jesus Christ who was the first fruits of those who have gone asleep. It is our Lord Jesus Christ who replaced the last Adam and became the second Adam. It is our Lord Jesus Christ who will subject all God's enemies and our enemies. It is our Lord Jesus Christ who will rule in justice and righteousness. So Paul is saying, he's speaking to this church, we would not allow any division. And he's singling out the Greeks and he's saying, look, Jesus, Lord, come to terms with this. Set aside your pagan ways. He's speaking to the Jew. He's saying Christ is the Messiah. This is who he is. He is victorious. And he speaks to us and every Christian beating, their heart beating on this planet is to say, take note. He's the only true king. Paul does not say, hey, this is my Lord. No, he says, our Lord. See, Paul has placed himself shoulder to shoulder with you and I and says, this is what Christ has accomplished. This is why we can stand redeemed. I mean, think about it. These four words fix everything in the Corinthian church. If people would simply humble themselves and come under his lordship. Our Lord Jesus Christ would fix their divisions. Our Lord Jesus Christ would destroy their sexual uh, irregularities. Our Lord Jesus Christ would bring an end to the worship wars. And our Lord Jesus Christ would deal with the denial that they have regarding the resurrection. This is sorely needed in the church today. Simply say, I'm not going to look down the point of my nose at my brother and sister, but I, instead I'm going to pray for them. 
Because this is one thing we can stand shoulder to shoulder on and say, our Lord has done this for us. There is not one who has a step in front of somebody else. There's also not one who stands behind us, but in one line we say, our Lord has accomplished for us something none of us could do. And Paul is challenging the church and you and I this morning to say, this is who Christ is. This is what he's accomplished. This is your blessed hope of a resurrected body in the future. Christ is the first fruits. Accomplished it on the cross. Now here he comes to his conclusion. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, be immovable, always abound in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. So here's the present tense. You and I are commended. This is our activity. We are to be steadfast in the labor for the Lord. And that looks different for each of us. But none of us can sit still. See, for Paul, and I said this at the beginning, his, his passion, his drive, riding right with the power of the Holy Spirit, is always that correct theology, correct doctrine moves to application. Biblical thinking moves to biblical activity. It's not just some ivory tower thing to say, hey, this is great. Let's discuss eschatological events and the you know, different big theological terms, but we simply to come and say, no, there's application to all of that. See, the cross of Calvary doesn't say, that's great, I'm saved. The cross of Calvary says, I've redeemed you for a purpose. Your life has meaning, has value. Now there's purpose in the pain and the struggle. Shaping you in the image of his son, to which we respond and say, Lord, thank you. See, Christ is more than simple behavioralism. Sometimes the church looks at this and says, hey, let's just change our ways. Here's some guidelines. Paul has none of that in mind. He's talking to those who've realized all the brokenness of their life, all the sin, the shame, all the things that you won't even uh, speak out loud because you're broken about. He says, all of that Christ has redeemed. It is the grace that we sing about. And he speaks to this, and when you understand that all your cares, you've casted them all down, that he knows even better your brokenness than you know, and yet he says, my, my child, come, sit at my table. Right? As I wash your feet, that person who understands that goes, how can I live for this one true king? That's the response that Paul is trying to get out of us. He says, therefore, right? And he puts the, the pastoral love here. My brothers, my sisters. They're beloved. Isn't it amazing? Paul has come to them. Think about what we've covered up to this point in, in this letter, right? He's covered uh, the divisions happening. The trashing of the cross in the early chapters. The pride of their spirituality, their immoral behavior, their indifference to the conscience of others. Hey, I'm going to eat this, this sacrificed meat and make, I could care less if my brother fails. The quarrels over worship leadership, right? The, the drunkenness at the Lord's table. He's criticized them. The arrogance related to spiritual gifts, the failures to love one another. All right, he's called out some stuff, hasn't he? And yet he comes and he says, brothers and sisters, You almost have a hint there that you almost call them by name. He says, be steadfast and 
See, this church hasn't been steadfast or immovable in their theology or their ethics at all. You can't be too hard on them. I mean, they're out from pagan religions. Their, their Christianity's brand new, right? We can't be too hard on them. But they haven't been steadfast or immovable. But he says here, brothers and sisters, this is what is called upon. It's an imperative uh, verb, right? Steadfast. You see, Paul always puts his imperative verbs, his commands, in the context of the Because of Jesus, because he died for you, because he's your Lord and my Lord, let's be steadfast. Right, be fixed and determined, be purposeful, be faithful, right? Immovable, don't be fickle. Don't one day live for the Lord, the next say, well, you know, I don't know. Church, there's pressure that is going to be coming. Right, we need to be sure that we're in Christ. With all the issues and the problems of this church, he comes to them and says, guess what? If now, right, you'll be steadfast and immovable, You'll give yourself abundantly to the, to the labor of the Lord, to the work of the Lord. All of it, he says, will not be in vain. He began this chapter by telling them, right, here is the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is what you have unless you've believed in vain. Verse 2 of chapter 15, right? Here it is. Here's Jesus. He died. He rose again. Here's the facts of the gospel. You have this, you have Christ, you have the hope of eternity, unless you've believed in vain. Check your heart. He's also told us that God's grace towards him was not in vain. We could look at Paul's church planning ministry, right? Some of the churches didn't make it, but Paul doesn't yield and give up and say, that labor was for nothing. It's not in vain. See, in vain, when Paul's talking about this, he has really two ideas in mind. It's been his drive all along. All our labor, if our faith is in the resurrected Jesus, if my conviction rests with the fact that Christ has overcome this world and my response to that truth is obedience to God's word, he says, all that you do for the risen Lord, therefore, is not in vain. So whether you have struggles in your past and you have moments where you think there's no way can use me. Well, guess what? If you have placed your faith in the Lord and the resurrected Jesus and say, he is my Lord and my Savior, and my response to Calvary is to say, I want to be obedient, Lord, to your word the best that I can. And he says, all your labor, therefore, following that is not for nothing. It's not in vain. And that's what he's telling this church who he's criticized over and over again. Imagine, you can see the pastoral heart and, the, and after hearing all this, the brothers and sisters at Corinth were going, wow, there is, there is some hope here. See, the point is, and, and he said it and I've said it, is we don't get to quietly you know, go off into nothingness. We don't get to believe on Jesus and say, well, I just, you know, I'm gonna do my thing and go home. You know, American Christianity, we view some of our conviction as is, is, uh, screwy, to say the least. Church attendance is optional. I mean, it just makes me think when, it's, when we treat it as optional, you don't have no idea who God is. 
I don't say that out of guilt or fear. I'm not saying any of that. I'm just saying come back to realize what, what Christ has. Those wonderful books on, on the martyrism that is happening even today and, of course, in the history of those who would stand for Christ. Well, how is it that they got there? Well, they understood something about where they're going, and they understood something about what has been accomplished at Calvary. And therefore, the obedience rooted in this is seen. In his book, Christian Ministry by Charles Bridges, it's a paragraph that I highlighted as I was reading it, and I thought how, how prominent he's speaking to pastors and elders in this passage, but I believe this is, is applicable to every person who professes Christ. He says, we must indeed work like Nehemiah and his men with the trowel in one hand and the sword in the other. We have to build and, uh, and to fight at the same time the progress of the work would be stopped by the laying down of the trowel. The enemy would gain a temporary advantage by the sheathing of the sword. He goes on to say, Nothing therefore remains but to maintain the posture of resistance and the dependence upon him who is our wise master builder and the captain of our salvation, waiting for our rest, our crown, our home. I believe church like as in any other time, but ever more so today, that you and I need to be laboring for the kingdom with the trowel in one hand and a sword in the other. We are called upon to build into the kingdom of God using the gifts he has placed in us for his glory. We are to be a discerning right of the enemy and his tactics and those things that cause division. We are to cut those things out. This is where we are to resonate. I believe this is Paul's conviction for the church. You know, too often we think of this as just individualistic. The gospel is mine, I'll go home, right? But Paul is saying to the church, you need to be building into each other. You need to be grabbing those who are lost. You need to be active with your gifts. That's what he's telling them. I love the story. It's, of course, we say this, it's the Bible. We love all of it. But the story when David hears that Saul has been killed, and you would think for all the problems Saul has put on David's life, David's response, like a typical American would be, sweet, that guy's finally got what he deserved. That is not David's response. He weeps for the nation. See, too long we look individualistic at all these things where Paul is saying, look, you've got to labor into the kingdom. The kingdom is our brothers and sisters and those who are lost. You've got to be building into one another. Use your gifts in ministry. Teach the word of God. Bring understanding. Help those who don't know. Bring them along. Be full of patience and love and encourage them. For those who are lost, right? Tell them who Christ is. Hey, you need to come to church. Come to my life group. Let's, you know, come and let's meet and talk about this. I know it takes discernment. We live in a climate that is now actively against Christianity. But now more than ever, you should have a trowel in one hand and a sword in the other. We know where we're going. We know it's secure in what Christ has done. But while you have breath, day, be active for the kingdom. You know where the Lord has placed you, not by accident. You know those who are on your heart, be praying, but get busy. Therefore, Faith Community Bible Church, 
be steadfast, be immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. Because you know, you now know, when our faith is in Christ, and I'm responding in obedience, all your labor is not in vain. Let's pray. Father, we are humbled this morning at the truth of your word. And yet at the same time, Lord, we are elated and excited. We know, Father, we know you know our names. You know us better. We know ourselves. We know the redemption you have secured for us in Jesus Christ. We know where we're going. Oh, Lord, thank you. Thank you for the victory we have in Jesus. I pray, Lord, for each soul here this morning that our understanding, Lord, our understanding of the future of the resurrection and our, our knowledge and understanding of, of what Christ has done at Calvary would motivate us, Lord, to no longer sit on our hands but to pick up the trowel, pick up the sword, be active in building into the church, using our gifts. Or let us be active into the community, speaking to those who are lost, taking the, the, the one step that maybe we need to start taking. Lord, let us have that confidence with the power of your spirit. And may everything we've done with discernment, with love, we respond to those who have questions. But just as Peter said, sanctify the Lord God. Lord, we set you apart as priority, as primary. Because of you, the indicative, therefore, Lord, we will share our faith. Lead us that way to respond. Wisdom, dignity, Lord, hope, reasons that, are, that we believe on Christ. May we be a church, Father, that shines bright the gospel, that Christ is lifted high. We thank you, Lord, for redemption. We thank you for salvation. We thank you for the gifts. Lord, thank you for the truth of your word. Let it grow in us, I pray against the evil one who would steal the seeds, Lord, of the truth of your word. But let this, Lord, with right motivation, right biblical conviction, let our understanding lead towards right biblical action for your glory and your kingdom. We pray this in the wonderful, powerful name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.